church in Smyrna. To the church, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our ears this evening to hear what you have to say to us, one of the churches. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict us of our sin, comfort us where we need comforting, encourage us where we need encouraging, challenge us where we need challenging. Lord, we pray you'd speak into our hearts this evening, both as a body of your people and as individuals. Please show us Jesus this evening, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're looking at the letter to the church um, at Smyrna. We're on to our second letter in the book of um, Revelation, to the, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches. But first of all, does anyone here, would anybody here admit to watching X Factor? Oh, go on, there must be somebody here who watches Oh, well done, Fiona, very brave. Um, if you never watched it in, before in your life, you may have just accidentally stumbled on it when you were flicking through the channels. Yeah, I'm sure you perhaps have seen a little snippet of it, yeah. But if you ever watch it, and I'm not recommending it necessarily, I'm just saying, if you happen to ever watch it, um, it's um, all the acts that appear on the show are only really interested in the words of one person and one person alone. Yes, there's a team of judges and they're all very experienced in their genre of music and they've all got something to say, they've all got an opinion, but actually what the contestants want to hear is what Simon Cowell has to say because it's his words that have power. Power to give you a career in music business or words that can destroy you or destroy your hopes and your dreams. Words have power. And uh, we're looking at the seven letters, as we said, to the seven churches in Revelation. And last week we looked at chapter one, which gave a picture of Jesus walking among the churches. The Apostle John had a vision where he said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. John saw Jesus walking among the churches, speaking words to them. And he recorded them and they were sent out in the form of letters to each of the churches. Can you imagine turning up at church one Sunday and there's a letter, a letter that gives an assessment of your church 
And these words have come from Jesus. Just imagine we got a letter like that at St. Stephen's. What might he say to us? What might his summary be of us? What areas would he say that we were strong in? What would he say we were weak in? What words might he say to strengthen us for the future? Would he reprimand us? Would there be any words of encouragement? Or would he leave us with a promise which we could hold on to when life got tough? Well, let's look at this next letter, because as we said uh, last week, these letters are for the seven churches, but they're actually for all churches for all time. So these words are for us as well this evening. And I've got five words, which sounds like it's going to be a very long sermon, but I promise you it's not. Uh, Five words that Jesus speaks to the Christians in Smyrna. Sorry, A word of insight, a word of assurance, a word of encouragement, a word of warning and a word of promise. Let's begin with a word of insight. Verse 8, let's read verse 8 together. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The first words of Jesus that are given to the church in Smyrna are resurrection words. The words come from he who is the first and the last, who died and and came to life again. Now these words would have had a particular resonance for the church in in Smyrna because because of their history as a city. Because the city of Smyrna, um, as you know, it's in modern-day Turkey. The city, city still exists, and it's known as Izmir. It's about 35 miles um, up the coast from Ephesus. And as one writer puts it, it was the next town that the postman would reach as he was delivering his seven letters. However, 700 years before this letter was written to this city, um, the city of Smyrna had been completely destroyed. It had lain in ruins for 300 years but had been rebuilt into a majestic city. If you like, the city had been raised from the dead and was now a thriving metropolis. It had experienced a kind of resurrection. Like their city, their risen Lord had also died and come to life. And resurrection was to be the experience of the church as well. So these words are carefully chosen, designed to show how the risen Lord knew about where they lived and about their circumstances, just as he does for us today. But did you notice that the the title that Jesus chose to introduce himself uh, to the church at Smyrna? He said he's the first and the last. And in the Old Testament, God describes himself in this way. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, it says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. God is saying that he's there at the beginning and he's there at the end. He's there at the moment of birth and he's there at the time of our death. You may recall the words that Jesus said in in chapter 1. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
So because Jesus is there at the beginning and he's there at our end, we don't need to be afraid of whatever life may throw at us. The next word that Jesus speaks is a word of assurance in verse 9. Let's read verse 9 together. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so the next words that Jesus says to the church are words of assurance. Jesus knows about life, what it's like for the Christians in Smyrna. He knows about the issues that they face. And Jesus assures them that he knows their afflictions. He knows their poverty. And he knows the slander that they're experiencing from their enemies. Let's look at those, each of those briefly. First of all, their afflictions. The, the afflictions they are suffering, um, uh, the Christians are suffering, are really, well, probably related to the fact that they are Christians. I understand that the original Greek word for affliction has the idea of being crushed, of being under a heavy weight. And the church in Smyrna was under enormous pressure. Perhaps you've experienced pressure, feeling like a weight upon you. It may be related to your circumstances in church or at work or within your family. But we know that Jesus knows what that feels like. Before Jesus was arrested and sentenced to death, he spent time in, in a garden called Gethsemane. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. It was a place where olives were pressed to extract the oil. It was a place of crushing. And Jesus experienced that sense of being crushed as he faced the prospect of his own death. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Secondly, we read that Jesus knew about their poverty, and it's interesting that Mark should read uh, the Beatitudes, and I just, as I was listening to them, I thought, wow, these really do fit in with this letter that we're reading this evening, and we didn't, we didn't plan that. But it appears that the Christians in the church of Smyrna were materially poor. They were nearly destitute. And although they lived in a city that was said to be the pride of Asia, um, they were poor. Although they lived in a place which had a beautiful setting, it sat behind a natural harbour, one of the few planned cities in the ancient world, and yet the city's wealth only exaggerated their own poverty. And their poverty may have been related to their Christian faith. Um, the historians say that this particular city, city's economy thrived on craft guilds, which were a bit like unions. And um, to be in a particular profession, you had to belong to one of these craft guilds or unions. And if you didn't belong to one of these unions, then it was very, very difficult to get, um, to get work. And so it may have been actually that the Christians were excluded because of their faith and their commitment to Jesus as Lord. And consequently, they may have been very poor. Um, there are many Christians around the world today, um, and their experience is very similar. They live in poverty, and that's sometimes related to their Christian faith. While we were living in Pakistan a number of years ago, we had a team that came out from our home church. Our home church at that time was 
the Worthing Tabernacle down in, um, down in Worthing. And um, these, we had a team of young people that came out for 10 days to sort of see what it was like to live and work overseas. And I was with a group of, I think, three of the lads from our home church. Um, and they were meeting three Pakistani Christian lads. And we went to visit in Lahore, a very poor, really a slum housing area where these Christians lived. And they were really quite disturbed seeing the, this, the, the condition where the Christians were living. They were living in just one, most families were just lived, were sharing one very small room. They had no electricity. They had no running water. They had no toilets. They had to use communal toilets that were provided by the, by the government. But it was really a tough place to live. And, and the young people from Worthing were asking them, what, what, you know, what, what, you know, why don't you have electricity? Why don't you have running water? And they were quite kind of obsessed with these sort of details of life. And, and at the end of the time, the, the young people from Worthing said to these Pakistani Christians, how can we best pray for you? You know, how can we pray for you that your lives will get better? And I think what they were asking was, how can we pray that you'll get running water? How can we pray that you'll get electricity? But the answer, from the Pakistani Christian young men was intriguing. They said, pray that we will be bold in sharing the gospel to Muslims when we go out on the street. That just blew them away, absolutely blew them away, and me as well. Privileged young people from the rich Western nation of the UK hearing what it was like to be poor as a Christian and what their priorities were. Third, thirdly, we see our church in Samana, they were being subjected to slander. And what hurt most of all was that this slander came from those um, that they may have known or even been related to personally. And that's really tough, isn't it? When people that you know slander you. Because the church in Samana was most likely made up of people both from Jewish and gentle backgrounds. So the first converts from Jewish, from Judaism, they would have known, they would have been had relatives in the city who would have known them. But it was these people that seemed to be now maligning them, that there were, were spreading slander about them. But Jesus says to them, I know about this slander. Jesus knows himself what it's like to be accused and maligned. He was despised and rejected. And yet he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Next we see Jesus has a word of encouragement for them. And what a word it is. Jesus says to them, well, you may be under severe pressure. You may be, un you may be poor and you may be slandered. But do you know what? You're rich. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Because it's possible to have everything and yet to have nothing. And it's possible to have nothing but have everything. There is a richness in knowing Jesus that has nothing to do with what the world can give us in terms of wealth. There is a richness in Jesus as we look forward to all we'll inherit. There's a richness in Jesus that comes through tribulations and sufferings. Some of you may remember the Romanian pastor Richard Wormbrand who spoke of the richness of knowing Christ. He wrote in his, in his book, he said, communists believed that happiness, he was, um, he was a Romanian pastor that was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus during the time when it was um, a communist regime in Romania. And he said, communists believed that happiness comes from material satisfaction, but alone in my cell, cold, hungry, and in rags, I danced for joy every night. 
Alone in his cell, he recalled Jesus' words where he said, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And as he reflected on Jesus' words, he realised that he'd only half obeyed the commandment. He'd rejoiced, but he hadn't danced. So there in his prison cell, he danced for joy. He was experiencing some and expressing some of the richness of knowing Christ, to know that we can pray uh, in a way that is at variance with our circumstances, just like Jonah did in the belly of the fish. Do we know the richness of knowing Christ, that even when our circumstances are dire, we know that joy that comes from knowing Jesus? A joy, a presence, a daily reality, a hope for the future that's nothing to do with material wealth. Next, we see the risen Lord has a word of warning in verse 10. Let's read verse the first part of verse 10 together. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be patient faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. You know, it's interesting, it's only in this one letter of all the seven letters that Jesus finds nothing to criticise the church for. In fact, the main task of the letter is to warn them that persecution is to come. And he does so as the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead but is now alive. Persecution is knocking on their door. They can expect to be arrested and put in prison, but this is all to test them. It'll be for a period of 10 days. Not literally 10 days, but a picture of a set time determined by God when they would experience this persecution. There are some Christians in the UK that believe that that persecution is knocking on our door as Christians in this country. That the loss Um, of influence that the church has in public life, coupled with the anti-Christian agenda across all walks of life, may well be the beginning of Christians suffering for their faith in in the UK. They may be right, I don't know. But it's sobering, isn't it, for us to consider how would we respond if persecution was knocking on our door? And although the devil is behind this wave of persecution, we know that behind the devil stands God, And he has final control. If the one great lesson for the church at Smyrna was that suffering was coming, the other it was that it was time limited. And of course we know that the New Testament um, never promises us life without difficulties as Christians. Again, we look to Jesus and see there is no crown without a cross. So the message for the church in Smyrna was not to be fearful, but to be faithful, not to focus on the suffering, but on the all-controlling God. Be faithful, it says, even to the point of death. Many writers suggest that the persecution was associated with the um, emperor cult that was sweeping across the Roman Empire. From time to time, Roman citizens were expected to sprinkle incense on a fire before uh, the emperor's bust and confess that Caesar was Lord. But how could the Christians in the church of Smyrna say that Caesar was Lord when they had confessed that Jesus is Lord? 
And this was a dilemma focused, um, sorry, faced by Polycarp, the first bishop of Smyrna. And he faced this a few years later after this letter was written. And in a crowded amphitheater, he was, he was urged to acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and revile Christ. But Polycarp, sorry, Polycarp refused, saying, for 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Aren't those amazing words? Let's read them again. For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They tried to threaten him more and try and persuade him, but he stood firm. So the fire was lit, and the bishop thanked God for counting him worthy to share the cup of Christ and be numbered among the martyrs. Finally, we read there's a word of promise in verse 10 and 11. It says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Historians tell us that Smyrna boasted many grand and important buildings. And one of them was a huge stadium which was used for the famous games which were held there annually, rather like the ancient um, Olympic Games. Um, and the winners of those games were given a laurel crown to wear, a bit like this picture here. So the reward, Jesus is saying, the reward for being faithful in the midst of suffering, amidst of poverty, slander and imprisonment will be the victor's crown. And that crown was life, eternal life. And the crown was, uh, was worn by the winner of the games and it differentiated them from others who hadn't um, uh, won the games. And so it is with Christians. They will be given life, life which is unending. And the final promise was one that brings great comfort to those then and now who face the reality of dying for their faith. But it seems in these verses that there are two types of death mentioned in the letter. First, there is a bodily death which will come to all except those who are still alive when Christ returns. But then there's a second death referred to in verse 11 for those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and to worship the one true God. The Apostle John goes on to describe the second death later on in the book of Revelation, a terrifying prospect of being separated from God forever. But Jesus wants to rescue us from this. The risen Lord is saying, do not be afraid what you have to face now, even if it leads to death. He has already faced death for us and will be there waiting for us to give us the crown of life. So finally, I don't know <clears throat> what word you need to hear from Jesus this evening, whether it's a word of insight about where you are at this point of time in your life, or maybe it's a word of assurance that Jesus knows about your situation, or maybe it's a word of encouragement, or perhaps a word of warning, or even a word of promise. Whatever it might be, we are called to keep our ears open, to be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to us 
as a church family and as individuals as we hear his voice this evening. And as we take those words, let's let them be planted deep in our hearts. Let's meditate on them. Let's thank God for the way that he speaks to our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words that you gave to these churches, these early churches. And uh, thank you, Lord, that they're words that speak to us today. And help us, Lord, to be faithful in whatever situation you've called us to be in this, this coming week. Help us to be aware that you know about where we'll be from Monday to Friday. You know the challenges, you know the difficulties, you know the opportunities. And thank you, Lord, that you want to strengthen us in those situations that we serve you this week. And thank you for the comfort and the assurance of your words this evening. And as we enter this new week, may we know that we go with you into, into whatever we face this week. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.